1: My guest today is none other than Robin Cormack, who has written a book, Byzantine Art, which I've tried to hold in front of me here. Yes. And I must say you have chosen some beautiful photos in this uh, book, and I, I want to start with, it's It's a while ago since you wrote the book now, but uh, when you chose photos for it, Byzantine Art, is quite, there's quite a lot to choose from, I believe. Mean, was difficult to find the right photos for your book to choose? Um, sorry,
0: you have to say that again. That was, wasn't... It, was it
1: difficult to find photos to pick from, um, to put in your book?
0: Yes. If you're an art historian, your biggest problem in life is always getting permission for photographs, particularly as museums and other places charge enormous amounts. So you not only have to find the photograph, but you have to pay to publish them. You have to pay fees. And, this means that lot, lots of books have fewer images than we would like because of the whole cost of producing them. So, so yes. And uh, I take a lot of photographs myself, but you still have to pay to publish them right. to, the own, to the owner of the objects. So you'll find every art historian who wants to publish on their subject is up against copyright problems all the time.
1: Now, when, how, I was asked in the beginning, how how did you enter the world of Byzantine art?
0: Okay, I can tell you that. The, the odd thing, there's no recognized pathway to study Byzantium and Byzantine art. My own pathway goes right back to when I was at school. I I specialised at school in England, in Latin and Greek, in classics. And I did my first degree in Oxford in classics. But at that time, I kind of thought that classics had come to an end. How wrong I was, but I thought that uh, I I wanted to move on. And I went to Greece. I went to Greece to look at Minoan objects, but I preferred... Byzantine churches to ruins. So I did a second degree in history of art in the University of London, expecting to study modern art, but I was persuaded to use my Latin and Greek and to to look at Byzantium because it's a field, Oates was pointed out to me, where there's so much work to be done. There's so much new material comes up all the time. So it's a very exciting period to move to and very fulfilling.
1: Right. We had Aidan Dodson on the podcast a few times now, and he said that, uh, that in, when it comes to Egypt, His history book about Egypt, if it's two years old, might be irrelevant because they discover so much new material. Is it kind of the same with Byzantium? Yes, but,
0: it, there's new material all the time, and... Even yesterday, I was sent uh, uh, an Im- a painting um, owned by someone in Denmark. And it's, it's it's a new image, which is really important. And this happens all the time. Yes, people send me photographs of objects they've seen in sales or seen in a church. And there's new material appearing every day
1: at the moment. Now, Byzantine so like- yeah. no, art it- it doesn't seem sound like the easiest thing to study. So, how do you go on about studying the artwork and study the work of the Byzantine artists?
0: Well, if you want to study Byzantine art, you have to learn a lot of languages. You you have to learn Latin and Greek because that's the language of the culture. But it's studied very much in Russia and in Greece and in Germany. So you you need a lot of modern European languages as well and that's really essential for the subject so that you can read what other scholars say and that you can read documents uh, about the period so studying it requires knowing the history knowing the languages and traveling a lot because although byzantine art is in some museums a great deal of it is still in monasteries or in buildings in the mediterranean so studying byzantine art requires travel languages and history
1: now now we talked about this a little bit before i think and uh, you know one one went from being pagans as we call them to orthodoxy isn't and then worshiping saints and Photographs. isn't that kind of another form of paganism, just Christianized in a way. Um, yeah, I think mean that's. I mean, most Byzantine art that we have is
0: religious, and it is therefore Christian, and it grew up in the Roman world, and the artists moved from painting pagan imagery into Christian imagery. So there's an absolute overlap. Between the two worlds of uh, antique art and early Christian art, the art, the artist moved from one area of religion to another area of religion. So there's a lot of continuity in 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 style and methods, um, but there's also quite a lot of change and revolution because Christianity didn't have the same standards as the previous world, and of course it's a Monotheistic religion doesn't have loads of gods; only has uh, the basic uh, trinity.
1: But are are they worshiping kind of saints in the same way that we used to worship like Mars or Jupiter or Venus? Like, isn't that kind of the same thing as worshiping set being um, a pagan I, in a way? I think
0: some people might say this; it, it's straightforward. I'm not sure it's as easy as that. I think it's a bit more complicated um, so that it, it's true that you might imagine that St. George relates back to some pagan god, but actually the stories about St. George... No, 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 not I, they, like like not they, I mean, different. like
1: they... Uh... <laughs> I mean, that they worship him as if he was a god. Like, isn't that kind of the order that they worship their saints? No, the same almost don't. the same as the uh, gods? No. Um, you did, uh, that's the
0: wrong vocabulary, quite. Right? You don't worship, you venerate. Hmm. Veneration and worship are different. So you respect saints and... If you believe in the afterlife then the saints are in heaven and they can act on your behalf, they can mm-hmm. plead your case for what happens to your uh, soul after death, but that's not worship that's that's slightly different
1: right because for me who it's not in much, not have much knowledge about the the Eastern Orthodox world other than what I read in Byzantine history. It's, it just does kind of seem similar to paganism for me, as I, as I said.
0: Um, well, it's, remember that um, you, you say the, the Orthodox world, but in, in the early Christian world, it was the same in the East and the West. So there was no distinction between Catholics and the Orthodox. And the whole Protestant world is something that comes along much later. Um, so I think
1: there, there, there was Racket a was of the great schism in 1025, I believe. T- um, the schism was 1054. Yes.
0: Um, but that wasn't really deep. The It, it, it set up banners, but Eastern, the, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church moved slowly apart. It wasn't a sudden change in 1054. It was a, a movement with different emphasis in different ways.
1: And mm. um, what was the Channel's kind of st- when when it comes to Byzantine artists? Because the artist is quite beautiful in Byzantium. If you look at the Eastern Orthodoxy from the era, it's really marvelous. As and would like to refer to your book here, where you see some beautiful painting, painted pa- painted by the Byzantine artists. Was his status to be, was it a well well, good job if you became a Byzantine artist how did, and how did you become a Byzantine artist because yeah. you do touch on that in your book as yeah. well mm.
0: um, The status was, was certainly not great and so we actually know rather little about Byzantine artists, what information we have suggests that it was really a trade that you learned from your father, it was a father-son business so that an artist would learn quite young, usually in his father's studio or move. What was different is that an artist said they had to be literate. They had to know the, uh, the stories they were illustrating and they had to write uh, inscriptions on them. So from that point of view, an artist, I think, was always separate from normal society and they travelled a lot to move from one place to another to, to produce their works. It's not until the period of the of the, Renaissance, of the Italian Renaissance, not until the 14th or 15th century, that artists actually signed their works. And, uh, and we know a lot about them. And we know the first artist we know a lot about is a Cretan artist, Angelos. And we know because he wrote his will, in uh, in the 1436, and he set down what he wanted to do if he died, what would happen to his uh, uh, studio, what would happen to his tools. And so in his case, we can see he has quite a high status in Crete, but that's the first artist we have any real information about, nearly all the information we have about artists is deduced from works we have and a few
1: names. Is that a bit, little bit frustrating, to studying the art, that you don't know much about the artists themselves? Or Well, it, it makes it very different from a lot of
0: Western art studies. And you know, whereas in the West you have Vasari and biographies of artists, you have nothing like that for the Byzantine world. So it's different. But then that's probably true to some extent of antiquity as well. But certainly, artists are mostly anonymous. Mostly, we don't know their names.
1: So, and when uh, what is it? The art in the Byzantine world is did the Europeans get inspiration from them, or is there? Is there any inspiration from European art in the medieval era that resembles Byzantine art in the, at all, or is it all separate? Area? It's
0: certainly not separate. and uh, I mean up, up to the 13th or 14th century, there was a lot of interchange, and particularly Italian art looks like Byzantine art, a lot of knowledge and movement and particularly in the early Italian Renaissance, there's an important influence from Byzantium. We're kind of misled, again, by Vasari, the the historian of, of Italian art, because he was fairly nationalistic and he wanted to claim that all great art was made in Italy. So he played down Byzantine art but we we know from our our studies that artists like Duccio learned an enormous amount from Byzantium and copied Byzantium. Some people even think Duccio went to Constantinople. So there was a, a lot of interchange throughout the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. But then uh, from about the 14th century, it diverges and certainly. Orthodoxy wanted to seem a different form of Christian art from the West. And that, that seems the simplest term in the icons, which became so important in churches are always painted in egg tempera. Whereas in the West, in, uh, in Italy and, and the rest of Western Europe, they introduced oil and oil gives you a different way of uh, painting. And actually, it's not so permanent. I, icons painted with egg tempera as the medium are extremely long-lasting, much longer-lasting than oil paintings, which have to be
1: touched up much more often. It's. Um, I think, again, I believe you touched upon this. So when, when we see photo, photographs of saints or emperors or aristocrats, are they telling recon- me that this is what they look like, or are they accurate in the recognition of the people, or are they just trying to assemble a certain idea of the people, well, trying I, to portray? Yeah,
0: I, I'd say symbol, but since we don't know what
1: any of these hmm. people look like. Unfortunately, uh, there were no photographs back so, then. So in,
0: in a way, to ask the question, is this what they look like? You might say it's a silly question because yeah. that's not what they—that's not what they were interested in. They were interested in uh, allowing you to identify these uh, emperors and saints and to relate to them, and it
1: really didn't matter what exactly they looked like. Mm. So, and let's talk about Hagia Sophia for a bit and how how important. Because it's quite an important church, but how important is it? then? It, because it's one of the most magnificent, and of course, one of the most magnificent churches in history. And it's well, well, well how's, how how does the Byzantine art in Hagia Sophia resemble? Right. Well, I mean, what's amazing about Hagia Sophia? It, it's built. It's built.
0: The current church built in the middle of the uh, sixth century, and it is enormous. And each time I go there, it seems even bigger than the last time. It's a vast building. And just for space and atmosphere and the feeling that you've come somewhere special, it is so impressive. And the dome, the central dome, which they kind of felt was heaven and where in due course Christ was represented looking down, all, all that meant that subsequent to I Sophia, all major churches had domes and tried to have the same kind of feeling of space. What's odd about the sixth century church is it had no, it was it was built very quickly in about five years. Oh. It had mosaics, but there were no figures. It was entirely surrounded by crosses. So you went into a sacred building full of crosses, full of the the presence of God, but not the uh, figurative actuality. And the mosaics with figures in were only introduced from the ninth century onwards in bits and pieces. And so at that time, you could then look up and see the Virgin Mary, you could see Christ, you could see saints, and you could see festival scenes. But all that was added to the church slowly. It was continually developing.
1: As we know, the Ottomans came over to Constantinople in 1453 and they preserved the church, but as they were preserving it, they were covering the Byzantine art and the Christian part of the church. So when when the church became a museum after the Ottomans fell, how much have you found from the Byzantine world in, in the church and how much is, has survived without damage in, in the church? What can we still see from Byzantine times in there?
0: Um, uh, really, a lot has, has survived. the 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 When it became a mosque, the Ottomans didn't instantly cover up the mosaics. It took a few centuries before they did. And By the middle of the 19th century, yes, all the mosaics showing figures were covered up and a lot of the crosses were concealed. And there was an extraordinary restoration by two brothers, the Fossati, Swiss architects, in the middle of the 19th century. And they uncovered the mosaics and asked the authorities if they could keep them uncovered. They were told, no, no, they've got to be covered up again. And is then when it was made a church in the 1930s, uh, piece by piece, the images were uncovered using the records of Fossati, because Fossati had drawn, drawn uh, images of where all the mosaics were. And it took up to, to the 1960s to uncover them and study them. Um, Right now, of course, it's uh, been turned back into a mosque and there are curtains over the mosaics. So they are concealed again, as they were when it was a mosque. But um, uh, 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 I think this is a very sad move, although it's also true, it's quite exciting, that to see a a, a Muslim service in Hagia does bring the building to life. So there's pluses and minuses in the present right. situation, but the minuses are that the Christian images are being concealed again.
1: And I haven't been there yet myself, unfortunately, but for anyone who's been there, for yourself, who you study this area, it must be incredible to walk in the church and to think about the presence that great emperors and sultans have have walked these floors centuries before we, t- we even were born and touched and walked there ourselves. It must be an incredible feeling to think about.
0: Well, the, the,
1: the, the mosaics are
0: amazing. And uh, I've i studied particularly the so-called deuses mosaic, which shows Christ in the centre, the Virgin Mary on the left and John the Baptist on the right. And this was put in the church in 1261 by the emperor and maybe at the bottom, which is missing, maybe his image was there too. And the, this this mosaic is just like a painting and the figures are almost alive. And then it's that style which Duccio and the Italian artists knew about and copied. So to me, the, the, the deuses mosaic is... Absolutely extraordinary to see. It's in the gallery and you see it uh, close to.
1: Another thing you that you touched have a little paragraph of is and I found this fascinating because as you know the Roman, the Byzantines used the Roman calendar. So how do they go on about dating the Byzantine art that you find out that oh this was here in the May six 7, 70 perhaps for example or ten seventy one for news and example? How do they go on about dating? Well,
0: we're, yeah, the the, uh, the literal way of doing dating is uh, quite different from ours because it works from the dates from the creation of the world. And they thought creation of the world was in five five oh eight BC, so they counted from that, and so you have to convert that into modern dates. Also, the year began on the first of September, so technically. When you see a Byzantine work of art with a with a date on it, it will not look anything like a date you're used to. It will be something like six thousand and something, mm. and you have to uh, transcribe
1: that into uh, modern modern dating. I don't think I don't think many read Byzantine history as from books second second hand. Uh writing think about that necessarily that this is not what was 1071 for us necessarily wasn't that it was the year 6000 for them that's right so the millennium comes at a different time and so yeah. on. yeah yeah and another part you dedicate quite a huge amount of the book to is the churches in Nice. so what what is the importance of the churches in night Sinai, in the Sinai Ah, desert. Um, I mean, Sinai is
0: where I've been doing my recent research. The the monastery was built by the emperor Justinian in the middle of the 6th century. So the same emperor that uh, built Hagia Sophia. He built the monastery right at the edge of the empire on the borders Uh, of the Roman world, as they they called it. Um, And it was believed to be on the site where Moses stood in front of the burning bush and where Moses received the law. So pilgrims had been going there since the 4th century, but from the 6th century onwards, it's been a place where Orthodox monks have lived pilgrims have come and the church when you arrive there you know after a long journey and most people went say from jerusalem it's 21 days by road from jerusalem in in the middle ages you would see a mosaic of the transfiguration and you would be present at services which go on most of the day the the purpose of this monastery was to say prayers for mankind day and night and the pilgrims brought art with them, and Justinian sent works of art so in the monastery storerooms and in the church, there are paintings from the sixth century onwards, and they're some of the best paintings that we know from the Byzantine world so uh, you arrive at the end of the world, and you see paintings made in
1: the center of the world, which have moved there. Right, and but, so then another extraordinary thing about the church as well is that it got the hand of the prophet. That means no, nobody can touch the church, if I if I remember correctly.
0: That's that's right. They 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 have a document. They also in the 12th century built a mosque inside the monasteries terrace so it's the site is not only sacred to christians it's sacred to muslims and of course it's sacred to judaism as well so pilgrims come from the three great abrahamic
1: religions they all come to sinai just do they, do they still have the document in its original form or is it lost or is it still precise still have that they
0: still have, but they still have they still have the document because what a lot of people what the pilgrims do when they come to sinai is the majority of pilgrims climb up the moses mountain up to the uh, it's about a two-hour climb they go at dawn and there's a little church right at the top where it's thought that moses received uh, the the ten commandments law so pilgrims arrive in the monastery at midnight climb up to the top of the mountain, then come down to a service in the church where they uh, venerate the relics of St. Catherine. The the relics of St. Catherine appeared mysteriously in the 12th century. Originally, the church was dedicated to the Virgin Mary. So it was the monastery of the Virgin Mary. Since the 12th century, it's been the monastery of St. Catherine. And that brought in a lot of Western pilgrims during the Crusades because St Catherine was very popular as a saint in the West. And it also brought in a lot of Russian pilgrims. So the name Catherine has uh, made it a centre, not only for the pilgrims to the sites of Moses and to the Virgin, but also to St Catherine. So it's an enormously uh, sacred site for Christians, Muslims, and Jews.
1: Right. And another similar church kind of important to history, I would say, or not church, but monastery, is the Mount Athos. I, I believe that's the closest we can come today to, to the Byzantine world, because they still upheld their practices, and still there is still, to this day, there is no woman allowed in, in that monastery. Um, that's, that's quite correct. Now, um,
0: Sinai... Does allow women in inside, but no, um, no woman mm. could stay inside the monastery in the guest mm. rooms. The women are, are still, to some extent, excluded, and they couldn't become. Uh, mm. a, right. a monk. Uh,
1: and then Mount Athos in Greece, yeah. the monastery in Mount Athos. If I say that correctly. Yes, Mount Athos, the Holy Mountain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean. In,
0: uh, um, Athos has 20 monasteries, and as you say, they're all housed they're by, men, by men, no women are allowed in. They actually, when you go there, one thing that strikes is they're still on Julian time, they're on Roman time, so the days of the week and the festivals are something like 13 days different from the rest, the rest of the world. And like Sinai, the, the services go on day and night, and the purpose of the monasteries is to pray on behalf of uh, the Christian world, Christian mankind. But they also, like Sinai, have wonderful works of art. So uh, they are. Uh, each monastery has manuscripts and other works of art, but. Um, they're much more dedicated to orthodox pilgrims. So if, like me, you're not a member of the orthodox church, um, this is no problem in Sinai, but it is a problem in Athos these days. You may not it, be allowed into the church even. Is it,
1: is it frustrating for you not being able to go into the church and study these Byzantine works of art?
0: Yes, I, for which reason I I
1: seldom go to Athos. Mm-hmm. I used to, but I don't anymore. Yeah, I I, believe, I don't know if you heard a story, but I believe there is this one guy who passed away recently who, who had never seen a woman in his life because he was born in Mount Athos and he lived his entire life there and he never seen the face of a woman since the child and a woman. Um, I entering.
0: think that that sounds a bit of a fiction because I no, don't know. No one is born on Athos because there are no women there. So you could not be born on Mount Athos. It might be. I I don't know. I saw it somewhere, but I don't remember. It's it's impossible to be born on Mount Athos. So every monk there has actually grown up outside Mount Athos. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't normally become a monk before the age of 14. So it's I don't believe it's possible for a monk on Mount Athos
1: not to have seen a woman. Right. So uh, this brings us to the iconoclasm. And what exactly is iconoclasm? And as you state in, again in the book, you say that and there there's quite a lot of books, it's quite a popular topic to study iconoclasm in the era. And you can find quite a lot of books and it deserves an episode of its own, of course. But just what, what exactly is was the era of iconoclasm? Okay, well... More has been written about iconoclasm than
0: anything else in the Byzantine world. So even your question, what exactly is, is difficult because there's so many different versions of what iconoclasm was. And it's been changing quite a lot recently. So you have, technically, iconoclasm is smashing icons, breaking icons. Um, More specifically, it means that, between the year uh, 726 and 843, it was artists were banned from painting figurative images. That's, that's technically what iconoclasm means. However, some people don't think it happened at all. Mm-hmm. Some people think it was universal.
1: And in between... Well, what is the reason for not believing that iconoclasm happened? Have a, um, is the, is the, is the it's just... a bit of
0: mythology invented by the church because they didn't like the mm. emperor. So mm. um, it's true that in that period of the Middle Ages, Byzantium went through a pretty bad time because it, there was the growth of Islam. There were invasions from Persia and there were invasions from the East and the economy certainly faltered. So it wasn't a great time To live, and there would have been, in any case, probably a reduction in art because there there was less money around. And the interest, obviously, is the fact that Islam was opposed to images, and the emperors who supported iconoclasm were said to be friends of Islam. So there was certainly a belief that it was part of either taking on Islamic ideas or or Judaism, Jewish ideas and bringing them into the Christian church. There's always in the church, as far as I can see, been opposition to making images. And you can see that in the Protestant world. Um, I remember remember going um, to Aarhus and going to the cathedral and seeing completely whitewashed cathedral so there's always been church men who didn't like images and there's always been churchmen who did like images so I think it's a per- perennial conflict I mean I'm in the middle on this I think that iconoclasm did occur and that we have evidence of icons being destroyed but I don't think it was a major movement I don't think it was it happened everywhere i think it was uh, um, among certain church people that they thought uh making images was dangerous
1: was it like kind of like what we just earlier that they felt that it that it was kind of paganism is that why one of the reasons why i joined the classroom happened that felt it was a form of paganism and that's why they were against it
0: yeah and uh, after all um the second commandment, which Moses had said, do not make images. So there was was a prohibition within the Ten Commandments against images, and that became a debate exactly what that meant. Did that only apply to the Jews, or did it apply to Christians as well? So there's a lot of debate even about what the second commandment meant. and, And the East was more concerned about it than the western church which uh, didn't think it was so important um, but it, it was a big theological debate probably throughout christianity on what the role of images should be and whether it's dangerous having uh, statues of the virgin in a church and people do people get the wrong idea um so and uh, I don't think it's surprising uh, that uh, there have been periods of greater production of images in the Christian church and periods of lesser. And you have the ref- same issue went through with the Reformation and Protestantism.
1: Um, well, if you, if you were caught, like, was it forbidden in during the eternal cosmos to have images? Was there a punishment if you... You kind of already answered the question, but uh, was was there punishment if or there, um, how strict were they in, in the ancient iconoclasm?
0: Again, it's it's difficult to know because what what the church did was it, uh, after, after iconoclasm came to an end, the church thought it was a very good idea to emphasize how awful it was so that the church looked good for having rejected it. So you get stories of saints Saint Stephen, who was said to be martyred because he was uh, a lover of icons. So Mm. certainly there are texts which say there are a few monks who were uh, martyred, but we don't know really whether that's true or not. But the church after iconoclasm came to an end, the church then said it was a really terrible period. We've won. You can have images. And there was a great flourishing in the 9th and 10th century of images. And that's when Hagia Sophia got its first figurative images. In Hagia Sophia, the first mosaic in the church, which was a representation of the Virgin Mary and child, which was put up in 867, it says this replaces images thrown down by the iconoclasts. Now, that that's what the text says. New image replaces an image destroyed by the iconoclasts. But so far as we can see, archaeology, that wasn't true. There never was an image of the Virgin destroyed by the iconoclasts in Hagia Sophia. But it was a good idea to say there had been when you put up a new one. It was good propaganda. Yeah. So you can see why people are really interested in iconoclasm because there's so many levels of complication of truth and propaganda uh, as a result of iconoclasm. It's a, it's a it's a it's a fascinating image, and as you say, it's like cance- it's like canceling culture now, where images are being destroyed.
1: Um, right, and um, who who. Who were responsible for bringing icons back? Who, because the empresses of the had quite a lot of say in... And I believe it was Zoe. If I, I don't remember. There was two empresses in particular. I remember, I believe one of them was Zoe, but I don't remember the other. But how how did they help bring iconoclasm? Oh, well, um, again, you're into the literature of iconoclasm. There, there,
0: some historians have claimed that the revival of icons was due to women, and that it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been a, a, a regent empress. Um, the, this is only an interpretation and I think it's much more likely that the uh, people who brought back the icons were the the elite in the church, the monks and the and the clerics. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that the empress, uh, the- Theodora actually commissioned any icons, but it's, uh, um, it's, it's obviously an important issue for feminist history because Byzantium it, Byzantium wasn't a great time to be a woman. Yeah. We've talked about artists, so far as I know, there were no women artists yeah. um, and so, a number of uh, modern historians have tried to see if actually there were more, that women were more important than it looks. And one of the lines they've taken is that women were favored icons more than men, but I can't myself see any evidence for bringing gender in, into this discussion. I don't, see, it's a gen, don't think it was a gender issue in the right. church that that uh, divided whether you liked icons or not
1: but it's it's it it has become an important discussion mm. and something that you that again just talked about is that emperors and and yeah, probably empresses as well did contribute quite a lot so how did emperors and empresses contribute to Apart from what they talked about, in bringing an end to the class, how did they contribute to the Byzantine art?
0: Yeah, they have they have become important in our interpretation. Obviously, funds in the palace were enormous. They had enormous amounts of money, so they could endow churches. They could give presents and. Certainly the history of Byzantine art has been divided into imperial dynasties. So you have, after iconoclasm, you have the Macedonian dynasty because these emperors were related and you have the Comnenes and the Paleologues. So it's true that Byzantine history has been described by modern historians in terms of the emperors. And I think there's some truth that they were major patrons of the art but not all emperors were i mean basil ii who was emperor for 40 or 50 years at the end of the 10th century uh, we only know one manuscript that he actually paid for so it's there was it's it's a relation between the church and and the court of how art was produced and church and court both endowed art and spent their money Art, certainly.
1: So, what when the, when the four happened, which in 1204, it's uh, it's the how how did they kind of because that's kind of a big factor for the Renaissance, in, isn't it? That because they and we discussed this in one of the very first episodes that because with the Dimitri, this. I don't say his name wrong. This history. I can't say his last name. Professor Dimitri, where he's been talking about the, at the end of the Byzantine and that the 12th Fourth Crusade was uh, one of the main massive contributors to the Renaissance because they brought art back to Italy and Venice. So how yeah. uh, so? How did that help contribute to I uh, in kind of a way preserving Byzantine art? Well,
0: 1204 is a a massive date, and the Crusades have been going on since the end of the 11th century, and it was thought that the Western Church and the Catholic Church were working together in trying to preserve Jerusalem uh, for Christianity and to keep it away from Muslim control, But certainly when the Fourth Crusade uh, took Constantinople, that that was a, a massive shock. And it's also true that Constantinople was occupied and administered by Western emperors from 1204 to 1261. So during that period, not only did a lot of Westerners see what was in Constantinople, But they certainly brought it back to France and to Italy. And obviously the the main uh, evidence of that is San Marco in Venice. The treasury has a number of absolutely fabulous works of art, probably taken from the great palace of the Byzantine emperors between 1204
1: and 1261. Is it around that kind of what ended up being a disaster and it's well-known disaster and kind of ended up saving Byzantine art as well well you that's certainly what um the clergy of
0: san marco in venice say that they're the great liberator. without yeah. them we wouldn't have these objects and there's some there is some truth in that yes um and a, an enormous number of Byzantine works went, went to Italy and, inspire, and inspired Italian artists and were preserved. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's true that if you want to see Byzantine art, obviously you need to go to Istanbul and see Hagia Sophia. But otherwise, most of the major objects are dispersed dispersed around the world in all around Europe and the United States, particularly manuscripts which uh, have
1: moved outside the city itself. I'm gonna go draw a limb here and uh, I'll ask if, if I wanted to find original Byzantine artwork for my personal collection, if I had one, how how much would that cost me if I and how difficult is it to get original Byzantine artwork for your living room if you if you wanted it? Yeah. Well,
0: manuscripts have become quite expensive, but you could go to uh, dealers and auctions and buy Byzantine icons. Um, uh, There was a a local sale here in Cambridge, and uh, they were selling a little icon, which they didn't know what it was, uh, for under um, 100 euros, Mm-hmm. And I decided to buy it. And it's, a, it's actually a quite important Russian icon of the 16th century. It's worth several thousand pounds.
1: Mm-hmm. So, left you there.
0: <laughs> so you can certainly buy icons. They're, they're generally underpriced.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And one one day they will become much more valuable. I mean, it's bizarre to me that an icon of the same date as a painting by Duccio will cost about a hundredth the painting by Duccio because everybody's built up the Italian Renaissance prices
1: enormously. You should should believe that something that has such historical value will be worth millions of dollars. That's what I was estimating, at least hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's the, that's the answer I was expecting, to be honest. If you, if you if you want to invest in art, go to Byzantium. It's good. Yes, <laughs> it's <a good> <laughs> So, of course, with the fall of the Byzantine Empire, how how did that go for the Byzantine artists and the Byzantine world? Because as we know, it didn't way, The Ottomans didn't like, kind of end, and it went on in Russia. But did it in the? Was it wasn't preserved in the Ottoman Empire or after the after the Cretan or. How, how did that, well, what did that say I mean, for the Byzantine world?
0: It's an important oh. question and one which really people are looking at much more carefully now. What, what happened in 1453 was that the society of Byzantium with an emperor at top came to an end.
1: Yeah.
0: And so that particular society ended, but in the Ottoman world, Uh, You could still be a Christian. You could still go to church. You could still build churches. Of course, you had to pay a little tax first. But it could be done. And what people have generally called this period post-Byzantine. So they talk about post-after Byzantium, post-Byzantine icons. And that actually I think is rather an unfortunate term because they
1: went on Developing icons, new subjects, new Uh, styles, and as we know, Russia still and Greece still kept their autocracy. Yeah, so to this
0: day. Yeah, yeah. so it's not really post Byzantine; it's just a new world which we're only beginning to appreciate. And one of the most uh, interesting parts of the world was Crete. Crete became under the control of Venice after 1204. And that went on into the 17th century. And so uh, there were Byzantine churches, Byzantine, and Orthodox Christians, and an enormous number of icons are produced in partly Byzantine traditions and partly Renaissance traditions. And recently, these have become much more valued. And they're certainly not post Byzantine. They're, They're Cretan art, they're in new development. They're very exciting. So, yes, the world of Byzantium came to an end, but insofar as Byzantine art is the art of the Orthodox Church, it went on developing, and
1: uh, it still is being produced now. And uh, I want to, that's what I want to talk about um, before we end the episode, because how, the, how has Byzantine art influenced because you don't think because it's so old that it, it still has an influence on modern artists, but it does, and that's one of the reasons why it's surprising why you can find so low icons to such a low icons to such a low value, because it's still in the Byzantine art inspires still modern artists today. So how does it how does it inspire modern artists so how does it help develop art in today's world?
0: But you're absolutely right. It has inspired modern artists. Artists like Matisse when they went to Russia were an influence. Um there's a case for saying that Rothko is influenced. And what it seems is the influential aspect is, is the, uh, the use of colour, bright colours. And this is partly because of using Ed Tampera in the icons. But it's also the stability that this, this offer. You, you, when you look at an icon, you feel that the world has been stable and unchanged for 2,000 years. It gives you a great feeling of security to look at an icon. Uh, You you don't have the kind of mad over-the-top displays of Renaissance art. You don't have Caravaggio or or, or Grunewald going to extremes. You you have a world which is accessible, uh, stable, and uh, can help you. Um, get through emotional moments, through through experience of of, of death and and disaster. So I, I think icons give that feeling of stability, but they also give a great feeling of pattern and directness,
1: which has appealed to a lot of modern painters. So do do you, do you think that? Unless you're studying Byzantine art yourself or read about Byzantine art, do you think you wouldn't recognize that? Oh, this is Byzantine influence. No, you wouldn't recognize it unless you've read about it. Um, or seen seen enough for the draft to know what yeah, Byzantine art is. I,
0: it, it helps if you read, because perhaps the worst problem, if you want to study this period of art, is this name, Byzantine. Mm. Because It's has the aura of being obscure, complicated, unpleasant, bureaucratic. It's a terrible name. Mm -hmm. It was the the name Byzantine was uh, brought into uh, scholarship in, in Germany, I think in the 17th century, because people didn't want to call it Greek art. Because it's not it's a multicultural art, so they thought it was misleading to call this art Greek. So they they said, let's call it Byzantine because it's based on uh, a city which before Christianity was called Byzantium. So the real the real problem is to get away out of your mind that Byzantine is obscure and difficult because actually it's direct. Yeah. Uh, and um it's 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 accessible as chinese art or or other oriental art um and it has pattern and
1: content together thank you so much for coming before you go do you have anything you wish to promote and where can people buy your book if they're interested in reading which you absolutely should it's a fantastic read and do you have anything you wish me to put in the description of the episode? it's been
0: great to talk to you, and you've asked I think the questions we've covered are really important ones for anybody interested in this period, so I'm glad I've had the chance
1: to say just a little bit about them. I'm glad you, you. You. I'm glad you took the time. Uh, we are. This has been Well Twelve. My name is Alan. We are available on social media on Instagram under Well That Twelve, TikTok even under Well Twelve too, and we are on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Please consider writing a little re- review if you use an Apple Podcast. It will help us out a lot. Thank, my name is Alan. This has been Well That Twelve, and I'll see you next time. Please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast.